0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, episode 174, The British Changed Strategy. The winter of 1777-78, was a difficult turning point for the ministry in London. News of General Burgoyne's surrender at Saratoga shocked officials, who never seriously considered such a possibility. Many had figured the worst case would have been for Burgoyne's army to retreat back to Fort Ticonderoga for another try the following year. Even before word of the surrender reached London, officials were growing increasingly skeptical of an easy way out of the American quagmire. In August, Prime Minister Lord North wrote one of his undersecretaries of state that, quote, It has been, for many months, been clear to me that if we cannot reduce the colonies by force now employed under Howe and Clinton and Burgoyne, we cannot send and support a force capable to reduce them. The British army in America in 1777 was already much larger than the entire British army around the world had been before the war began. Normally, Britain kept between 12,000 and 15,000 soldiers in Ireland in order to discourage revolts there. Because of the war in America, they had reduced the garrisons to around 3,000. In 1776, after one of two regiments in Jamaica sailed for New York to support General Howe, officials had to put down a planned slave insurrection that got its motivation from the reduction in military on the island. Much of the British Empire remained in peaceful obedience because subjects believed that defiance would not lead to victory, but only to a brutal suppression. With Britain removing so many soldiers from other outposts around the world to support the suppression of the American Rebellion, Britain was putting its other colonies at risk. Howe's calls for more soldiers in America would only make the situation even more precarious in other parts of the empire. Britain had already sent the largest transatlantic military force ever deployed up until that time to America in 1776. The point of that force was to shock and awe the colonists into submission. More than a year later... The Americans seemed neither shocked nor awed. Their armies continued to defy authority, and their claim for independence did not seem to falter. North and others believed that if they could not crush the American rebellion with that large force sent in 1776, then Britain could not crush the rebellion at all. In another letter preparing for the King's speech to Parliament to be presented in the fall of 1777, Lord North wrote, quote, How shall we mention America? Shall we be very stout? Or shall we take advantage of the flourishing state of our affairs to get out of this damned war and hold a moderate language? In other words, even before the loss at Saratoga, North was seriously debating the idea of an exit strategy. If there was one stalwart leader in London, who was not looking for a way to resolve the war other than complete victory, it was none other than King George III. On November 20, 1777, the king made his speech to the new session of Parliament. The sole focus of his speech was the rebellion in America and the need to restore peace, order, and loyalty to his American colonies. When rumors of Burgoyne's surrender reached London a week or so later and were confirmed by early December, the landscape of the war changed dramatically. This was the first time in history an entire British army had surrendered and been taken prisoner. It made very clear that crushing the American rebellion was not inevitable, that the plans to do so had failed thus far, and that there were no good plans for turning things around. It was in early December that Lord North sent Paul Wentworth to Paris to talk to the American commissioners about a negotiated peace, something I pointed out last week. The American commissioners only used those negotiations to get France to move along its negotiation of a treaty of alliance with the U.S. About the same time that London was getting word of Burgoyne's surrender, it also received General Howe's resignation letter. Back in mid-October, even before he received word of Burgoyne's surrender, General William Howe wrote to Lord Germain in London to express his wish to resign his command and return to London. Howe believed that Germain and other officials in London had refused to take his advice on strategy and that they refused to provide him with the soldiers he needed to carry out any effective operations. It's hard to say for certain if Howe genuinely wanted to resign whether he was bluffing in hopes that it would get the ministry to give him the reinforcements and command authority that he thought he needed to win, or more likely somewhere in between. Hal said that he did not think he could win without more reinforcements. If he was not going to get them, he did not see a path to victory. London could either supply the troops or pick a new leader who thought he could do better. Secretary of State Lord Germain Had already made clear that he was not going to raise more armies in any substantial numbers beyond those sent in 1776. With the loss of an army of over 8,000 in the Saratoga campaign, the British army would have an even smaller force to work with going forward. By this time, most of Parliament was laying the blame for this debacle on Lord Germain. He was the man responsible for authorizing Burgoyne's campaign and for making sure that Burgoyne received the necessary support to complete his mission, including making sure that General Howe's army would work with Burgoyne as originally planned. Germain had allowed General Howe to sail off in his attempt to capture Philadelphia, and while the Philadelphia campaign was successful, it also meant that Howe was unavailable to assist Burgoyne. Many officials in London believed this support could have prevented Burgoyne's surrender. Howe's letter of resignation made it easier to try to make him the fall guy for this whole mess. Germain insisted that General Howe had failed to support Burgoyne as planned and that Howe should take responsibility for his decision to sail off for Philadelphia. Officials also laid blame on General Howe's brother, Admiral Richard Howe, for the Navy's failure to control the coast and deal with smugglers and privateers that supported the rebellion. They argued that the Admiral spent too much time helping his brother in support of the army. By early January, the Ministry also had a request from Admiral Howe that he be relieved of his command in North America. Lord Germain, who never really liked the Howes, was all for replacing them. In early January, he was pushing for Sir Geoffrey Amherst to take command. The 60-year-old general had brought victory in America during the French and Indian War. He was highly respected and was a higher-ranking general than Howe. In fact, Amherst had been Germain's preference before the ministry selected William Howe. The reason Amherst did not get the job in 1776 was that he did not want it. Amherst did not really want to put down a rebellion in 1776, and he certainly did not want to get handed this mess in 1778. It's hard, though, to say no if the king requests that you take command. Therefore, Amherst had to make clear to the ministry that he was not on board with their plan in order that he did not get the offer. Amherst insisted that he would need an army of at least 75,000 in America, more than double the current troop levels. Without that, Amherst believed there was no chance of success. Since the Ministry was not willing to build and deploy such a large army to America, they ended up passing on Amherst. Even if Germain wanted them gone, the Howe brothers had many powerful and influential supporters in London. The king was not ready to accept Howe's resignation and lay the blame there. The king also did not want to get rid of Lord Germain or Lord North, both of whom were implementing the policies he wanted. The king did not think he had any alternatives who would prosecute the war more forcefully. As a result, the ministry made no personnel changes as they argued through January 1778 about what they should do next. By the end of January, though, it was clear that either Lord Germain or General Howe had to take the blame for the mess in America. The king told Lord North to decide which of them should go. North opted to keep Germain. This decision, as expected, created a political firestorm. The chancellor, Lord Bathurst, threatened to resign in protest. Bathurst was a childhood friend of the Howe brothers, And possibly even a distant relation. He clearly was in the Howe camp and did not support North's decision to remove them. To keep the cabinet from falling apart, the king ordered Germain to write a letter to Howe, which was vague in its purpose. Germain's letter said that Howe was to come back to London for consultations, but that the king remained confident that General Howe could win the war and instructed him to prepare a series of attacks on New England ports for the coming year. In the meantime, since all the military commanders seemed to think that winning would require more soldiers than the government could afford to produce, the ministry began looking at other strategies that would not require holding large swaths of land in America. Before they had approved the 1776 Shock and Awe Campaign led by the Howe many in London had pushed for a more naval-centric operation where the British Navy would maintain a blockade of the continent, performing only coastal raids. The hope was that the misery of no trade would eventually result in popular opposition in America to the Patriot cause and lead to a negotiated peace. The ministry was again considering this approach. As January turned into February, the ministry waited to see if France would actually sign a treaty with the U.S. and go to war with Britain. The king even suggested that they abandon New York and Philadelphia. They would retain garrisons only in Quebec, Nova Scotia, and the Floridas. From there, they would simply maintain a naval blockade with no army presence within the rebellious colonies. British spies reported the treaty negotiations at Versailles. London, as I said, had numerous spies on the staff of the American negotiators, so London received reports of all progress almost as soon as it happened. Lord North had complete copies of the secret treaties that France had signed within days of their completion on February 6th. The only question for London was whether France would keep the treaties secret for an extended time or announce them quickly. London thought the treaties might stay a secret for months, thus averting open war between France and Britain. This would give London a short window to concentrate its forces in America on one final push to focus on suppressing the American rebellion. Once France declared war, or publicly released word of the treaty, which would require Britain to declare war, Britain would have to redeploy much of its army and navy to protect other colonies around the world, and even prepare to defend against a French invasion of Britain itself. Britain would no longer be fighting to win a war in America. Rather, it would be fighting to limit the potential damage to their empire. The First Lord of the Admiralty, Lord Sandwich, had been pushing for this naval-centric war for some time. And yes, he is the guy that we named the food that we put between two pieces of bread. Lord Sandwich had been with the Admiralty for decades. He saw how the Navy had successfully controlled the Atlantic in the Seven Years' War, making the British victory possible. In the Seven Years' War, begun nearly two decades earlier, France had to focus much of its forces in Europe to fight with Prussia and the other German states. In the war to come, France would be able to focus its much larger army on Britain alone. France had also spent several years building a much larger navy, with warships prepared to contest Britain for colonies and to transport its armies wherever needed. Britain would not only need much of its army to defend the mother country, but would also need to recall some of its fleet to protect the island against a potential French invasion. On March 8th, London issued orders to the commander in America, that he should abandon offensive operations if he could not bring the Continental Army to an immediate decisive action. Instead, war planners in London would have the Navy spending much of the 1778 fighting season attacking the New England coast. Then in the fall, they would move south to recapture Georgia, the Carolinas, and possibly Virginia, thus establishing royal control of the southern colonies where they thought there was a much larger Tory population that would support the king's troops. This would allow the navy to focus its blockade on New England and starve out the inhabitants there. On March 13th, less than a week after sending these orders to America, France publicly announced its treaty with America and informed King George III. Four days later, on March 17th, Britain declared war on France. By this time, the decision to replace the military commander in America was more than a month old. In early February, Germain had dispatched a letter to General Howe accepting his offer to resign his command and recalling him to London. At the same time, he sent a letter to General Henry Clinton in New York informing him that he would be the new commander of North America. While Clinton's reputation was still intact in London, following the disgrace of Generals Howe and Burgoyne, it was not like the Ministry didn't have serious doubts about him. In fact, at the time Germain had written to Clinton to inform him of his new command, no one in London was quite sure if Clinton might already be on a ship bound for London to try to resign his command once again. Clinton had never really gotten along with the Howe brothers and always had an opinion that he could do better than them but he had also never held such a large independent command. His last independent command resulted in the failure to capture Fort Sullivan in 1776. That incident actually led to his ongoing dispute with Commodore, by this time Admiral Peter Parker, who would eventually replace Admiral Howe as the North American naval commander. One reason there was reluctance to replace the Howe brothers was that it would end the unprecedented cooperation between the British Army and Navy. Even when several other admirals were proposed to replace Howe, officials knew that the Army-Navy cooperation would not be the same. The relationship between Clinton and Parker virtually assured that the relationship between the two services would go back to being a rather cold and antagonistic one. Although Clinton would finally have the independent command he wanted, he would find himself with a much smaller army than General Howe oversaw. Burgoyne's army was dispersed in POW camps and therefore unavailable for combat. London was not going to replace it. Further, many regiments of regulars would be needed in other parts of the empire to protect against the new French threat of attack. In March, London ordered the transfer of 5,000 regulars to the Leeward Islands, what we today call the Eastern Caribbean. Another 3,000 would go to East Florida. These forces would capture the French island of St. Lucia and protect Britain's island colonies from French attack. Lord Sandwich also recalled several dozen ships of the line to protect the waters around England. With his much smaller army, Clinton received orders to end offensive operations and consolidate his forces for a potential southern campaign to begin at the end of the year. Further, London instructed him to abandon Philadelphia and consolidate his army back in New York City. There were even contingencies to abandon New York and move to Halifax if needed. The war with France also made officials more realistic about a negotiated peace with America. As I said, sending Agent Paul Wentworth to France to meet with American representatives had gone nowhere. In fact, it probably helped to move along U.S. negotiations with France. Despite that failure, Lord North still believed that some accommodation would be possible in America and that coming to terms was necessary so that Britain could focus on its new war with France. As early as December 1777, soon after word of Saratoga arrived in London, Lord North had pushed for a new peace commission and for new laws that would convince the Americans that they would get all the reforms that they had originally wanted. The king objected to this policy. He believed that peace talks would only divide politicians in London and strengthen the opposition. At the same time, the king believed these concessions would fail because the colonies were not willing at this point to accept anything less than full independence. Also, the king noted that the elector of Bavaria had just died and that it was quite possible that France would have to go to war with Prussia and Austria over the selection of his successor. With the King opposed to concessions, Lord North tabled discussion of a peace commission until February. When intelligence made clear that France was about to sign the treaty with the U.S., North once again resurrected the idea of a negotiated peace. He finally got the King to accept the idea that making these reforms might lead to a political compromise with America. North pushed through Parliament laws that repealed the tax on tea. That repealed the Massachusetts Government Act, and which declared that Parliament would forever forego authority to tax the colonies, except for external customs duties. Parliament also approved the formation of a Peace Commission. Unlike the Howe Brothers Peace Commission, which had no authority to offer anything other than pardons, this new Peace Commission put everything on the table, except for complete independence. Commissioners could offer protection of colonial charters, repeal of all objectionable taxes, guarantee of no peacetime standing armies in the colonies, restoration of trade, essentially everything the First Continental Congress had requested in its petition, and more. Further, the Commission could negotiate directly with the Second Continental Congress as if it were a legal entity. In April, the commission, headed by the Earl of Carlisle, left for America, and their negotiations will be the topic of a future episode. Next week, however, we return to Valley Forge, as a Prussian officer named von Steuben brings professional training to the Continental Army. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com slash ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com slash ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. Thanks as always to Trey Nance and George Davis, for their continued support at the Alexander Hamilton Club level on Patreon. Thanks also to Howard Germain, who made a one time donation via PayPal, and Kurt Avard, who made a generous one time donation via Venmo. Kurt, you may recall, recently spoke to me in a special episode about his new book, First Do No Harm. Kurt is also a friend of the show and a long time listener. This week we heard about. The politics in London over the winter of 1777-78. Even before France entered the war, the North Ministry was seriously debating an exit strategy. The shock and all campaign of 1776 had clearly been a failure. Britain did not have the money nor the military resources to send a larger army that the generals wanted. Now, to a modern ear, this may sound strange. How can 70, 80, even 100,000 troops be a big deal to a country with a population of over 8 million? A general rule of thumb is that a country can sustain an army for at least a few years that constitutes 10% of its population. You have to consider that half the population was women who were considered non-combatants and rarely worked outside the home during this period. Another larger portion of the population was children At the time, most parents had large families, since a fair percentage of their children would not survive to adulthood. Even so, Britain had probably between 2 and 2.5 million men of fighting age. Out of that, an army of 800,000 probably would not be considered unreasonable today. But the 18th century was a different world. This was still before the Napoleonic era, when the great powers of Europe found ways to produce armies that numbered in the millions. In the Seven Years' War just a few years earlier, most major European powers marched with armies that numbered in the tens of thousands. Before the Industrial Revolution changed the economy, nations had real difficulties sustaining large armies in the field. More men had to remain on the home front, producing food and other necessities that the army needed. British policy throughout the war relied on the idea that a sizable percentage of the local population would flock to the king's standard and supplement the regular army. In America, that never happened, anywhere near the numbers they needed. So, Britain needed to raise a much larger army from its home islands. A Britain had managed to produce an army of about 300,000 during the Seven Years' War. The number of British soldiers fighting in America was only about one-tenth that size during the Revolution. The cost and difficulty of shipping an army across the Atlantic Ocean was a part of the reason for this. The other part was that Britain itself was divided. Many Whig leaders in Britain either supported the cause in America or at least were very sympathetic to the rights for which they were fighting. Getting the political support to raise taxes through the roof and to build an army designed to crush their cousins in America did not exactly appeal to many Englishmen. Even while the ministry was second-guessing its policies, there was one stalwart in London who was pushing for an aggressive military solution. That man was King George III himself. The king found himself having to buck up Lord North, Lord Germain, and others who were beginning to see that Britain simply was unwilling to make the massive sacrifices necessary to raise and deploy a larger army against the colonies. The king saw himself as a stalwart leader who was going to save the empire by the sheer force of his will. He had to hold steady the backbones of his ministers who were just too weak-willed to see through these difficult times. At least that would have been the narrative if Britain had ultimately prevailed. The North American commander, General William Howe, and the head of the naval forces, Admiral Richard Howe, had long been Whigs who felt sympathy for the colonists' complaints. When they hoped to return law and order, they were not willing to crush and punish the colonists for rebellion. Whether a more aggressive and brutal policy would have worked or would only have embittered later U.S.-British relations, is hard to say. We only know that the policy that they did try did not work. As the failure of that policy became clear, we see Britain making big changes. Accepting General Howe's resignation and inviting Admiral Howe to resign were two of those changes. The only reason Lord North did not resign was because the king could not find a qualified leader who was willing to pursue an aggressive policy in America. On top of all that, war with France did come in early spring, making a nearly impossible situation even more hopeless. Britain was now faced with the prospect not only of losing her North American colonies, but losing other colonies all over the world as well. It even faced a potential invasion of England itself. The replacement of the Howe brothers and the entry of France into the war marked a new phase in the war where Britain was really no longer trying to win. Instead, it was trying to minimize its losses from the war. If you'd like to read more about General Howe and Admiral Howe to better understand how and why they prosecuted the war the way they did, you will want to get this week's book recommendation. It's called The Howe Brothers and the American Revolution, by Ira D. Gruber. This is not a biography of the Howe Brothers. It focuses very specifically on the years that the Howe served in America, 1775 to 1778. It looks at the war from the perspective of General Howe and Admiral Howe during those important years. The book itself is just over 350 pages, not counting appendix and index. It's an older book, first published in 1972. The author, Ira Gruber, is a longtime history professor who has written a number of other books related to military history. He's still a professor emeritus at Rice University. So, if you're interested in Howe's leadership of the war, get a copy of The Howe Brothers and the American Revolution. My online recommendation is a pamphlet written in 1778 entitled A Letter to Lord George Germain, written by an Englishman who purportedly lived in America. This is an 85-page pamphlet published and distributed in London in 1778, which called for an end to the war and a compromise and political reconciliation with the colonies. Although, in the end, this pamphlet is just one man's opinion, I think it gives a good flavor for Whig sentiment in London during that time. As always, you can search for the pamphlet on archive.org or just use the direct link on my website or in the blog entry for this episode. Just go to blog.amrevpodcast.com. If you're looking for this after future episodes are released, you may need to search for the episode number, 174, to find the information on the blog. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run... For a second non-consecutive term. These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.